1: Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com.
2: One that I think anybody who is involved with fermentation ought to take a quick look at and read. From 1984, it's a pretty old article, but uh, what this article basically says is not, it's not necessarily true. I think every brewery should have a copy of this sitting around. And If you're looking for a, a fun article to read, that would be it. I, I, uh, I still remember that one. It's a good one. So I've got a New Year's
0: resolution for you. How about we all commit to pushing ourselves to learn more, to improve our process and our beer? For the next two weeks, we'll hear from a couple of guys who do a great job of motivating brewers to do just that. And they both have a knack for pointing brewers to underutilized resources, articles that you should have read but haven't. Next week, Charlie Bamforth joins us to talk about brewing innovation. This week, someone I really miss seeing at Master Brewers events, one of the best question askers and practical brewers in the business, Tom Epplett. Although it certainly doesn't feel like it, this episode originally ran in October of 2017. Next week, you'll hear the first brand new episode of 2021. And next month, we'll be celebrating the 200th episode of the Master Brewers podcast, a milestone I never dreamed we'd hit. Thanks for listening and happy new year. A couple of years ago, you put this presentation together, and it's called What Yeast Has Taught Me About Brewing Over the Years. Um, you had two main objectives in that presentation. Tell us a little bit more about those two objectives.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I remember my first Master Brewers conference back in 89 in Philadelphia, and I'm, I was observing the presenters, of course. And uh, I said to myself, well, one of these days I want to be up there and I want to I give, a, give a presentation. And the more I thought about it, I realized uh, that uh, when I gave the presentation in Minneapolis a couple years ago, that the uh, industry was going through a pretty dynamic change with craft brewers coming on board. And a lot of them, there's a real thirst for knowledge. And what they were not exposed to or could have been exposed to, but needed to be aware is the fact that there's an awful lot of information out there. So I just wanted to put this paper together to show them with uh, a little bit of research and so forth. uh, What? What what they can what they can actually learn, and uh, the other thing too is is that I wanted to emphasize the fact that uh, you know brewing's a biological process. In theory, we've got uh, we've got growing uh, barley, we have uh, malting barley, we have the brewing process of uh, converting starches into sugars, and then the last biological process, of course, is the yeast consuming the uh, the sugars and converting it into alcohol and CO two. And I just wanted to emphasize how important. Uh, the guys that do that, which are namely the yeast, how important it is to make sure we keep them happy and uh, comfortable with what they're doing.
0: That presentation was sort of a greatest hits of resources that have helped you learn and troubleshoot over the years. Let's talk about some of those articles that you bring up in the presentation, as well as some of the problems you've had to solve in various breweries over the last, what, 40 years or so. One of the first ones that jumps out at me is Graham Stewart's Fermentation, the Black Box of the Brewing Process. Why don't you talk a little bit about that one and why it's important?
2: Well, you mentioned what was the problem that I was encountering. Well, the problem I was encountering was a lot of uh, new people coming in to work with me and uh, other other people in the industry. and. They had uh, they had very little uh, understanding or background. and knew the basics of fermentation, but they didn't know the detail of it. And that paper by Graham is such a good one that it covers the whole matrix of fermentation from the uh, the components of the wort to the uh, characterization and, and control of the yeast. To the actual fermentation itself, to developing the type of footprint you're looking for in your finished product, it just seemed to be so inclusive, uh, so well written that it just seemed to be a really good starting point. So that was one that uh, I I pointed new folks to to look at right off the bat, and that's that I refer to that uh, paper uh, with new people all the time. It seems like by new people, I mean people just starting. So it's been a pretty successful. Um, uh, representation of what we're trying to accomplish with regard to brewing i really thank graham for for putting that paper together because i think that's kind of a the uh that's kind of the benchmark and 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 sets the bar for what we can do with uh with our fermentation processes
0: Okay, let's talk about another one, Um, premature yeast flocculation um, in regards to malt, practical brewery observations of of fermentability. Um, That's Armstrong and uh, Benediac uh, from the Master Brewers TQ. Why don't you talk a little bit about that one?
2: Well, uh, yeah, Keith Armstrong. I uh, had the good fortune to go to a brewery up in Newfoundland, of all places, and Keith was the... uh, the brewmaster up there and we got to talking and i didn't realize he had put this paper together um we had encountered some issues not that often but you hear about stories about uh premature yeast flocculation and you know the the, the what can actually cause it it's kind of a mystery it's kind of one of those uh anomalies that happens in the brewing industry and when it happens it, it happens when you least expect it um so the reason I, I kind of referenced that article is more of a, this is a watch out, that if you do have an issue with premature f- uh, flocculation, here's where you can start the process of trying to evaluate what may have caused it and what you can do to correct the problem. It's a well-written paper, and it, uh, it's written by a gentleman that's, that's a hands-on brewer, so he's able to take the uh, um, academia part of it and translate it well into the actual what happens in operations? So that's kind of why I flagged that as a pretty good article for people to grab a hold of and, and at least have in there what I call my, my book of, uh, of brewing knowledge, uh, where you grab an article and you put it in a three ring binder and then and there it sits and, and the day may come where you need to reference it and you can pull it out and look at it.
0: All right. Another one that's in your binder is uh, fermentation conditions associated with incomplete glucose and fructose utilization. That's Hardwick and Skinner uh, from 1990. Um, Tell us about uh, how that's been useful to you.
2: Well, in the process of making some beers where we're going through super attenuation, uh, you can put your yeast into a situation that it's uh, after several repitches, it may get to the point where it's not able to uh, consume uh, s- some, of the, some of the sugars just because of the, of the biological processes have shifted. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a mutation. It's more of a, a conditional thing. And uh, though I've never encountered it, um, again, this is another article that I think, uh, especially with brewers that are making uh, light beers and so forth, need to have in their back pocket. That should that problem arise, that they can look at. Okay, what's what's going on here? What am I doing? I mean, if you think about making uh, some of these lighter beers uh, with uh, uh, low rural extract levels and high alcohol, what you're doing is you're uh, you're put making an awful high fermentable uh, uh, carbohydrate uh, percentage in, in your work composition. So, in the process of fermenting that, you're basically having the yeast run what I like to say, that you're having the yeast run of a marathon at a sprinter's speed. And, you know, after a couple of those uh, marathons, those yeast may not be too happy about what's going on, and uh, they may start uh, rebelling, so to speak. And that's what this paper kind of alludes to.
0: In your presentation, you you made a comparison of yeast to the other ingredients and you kind of joked about how it doesn't necessarily come with a COA or instructions and, um, you know, is a biological process and maybe your yeast, you know, got smuggled in under the the brewmaster's hat or whatever. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's... um... (laughs) I like that uh that analogy uh you know, smuggled in under the brewmaster's hat or brought in a different way and not just uh not just yeast but things like barley same thing are brought in and uh developed and so forth but what the point I wanted to get across is that yeast is um it's you know it's a biological entity and it's always in the process of growing itself and and there's there's uh, small changes that could be occurring and you hear stories about you know house flavor being developed because of a certain yeast being maybe reutilized too much and some people only will allow reusing yeast maybe up to twelve generations. So uh, I thought it was important to get that out there, that, you know, the thing with yeast is we are trying like crazy to make sure that the uh, uh, yeast is being well taken care of. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's do or die with it. If we, if we lose our yeast, uh, you know, we, we basically have to start over and hope that the yeast that we, re, we start up with will, will give us a good flavor match and that the product that we... We'll be brewing with new yeast if that's the way we have to go. We'll fit the flavor put footprint and so forth. So uh, again, I want to get the point out there. It's not like buying barley or, or excuse me, buying malt or hops or barley for that matter, where you have a COA coming in and you have a you have a uh, an analysis ahead of time. Um, with yeast, you're re- recovering it from a fermenter, putting it into a pitching brink, probably doing a quick dead cell count, uh, doing some micro testing, which won't be available for a couple days. And, and you're putting it back in, the, in a fermenter, keeping your fingers crossed, hoping it's going to ferment like you hope it will. So that's why I thought it was important just to emphasize that.
0: Yeah, and I thought it was cool, too. I mean, you mentioned that how, how brewing is really the only industry in the world where yeast is reused like that. Um, and you started to talk a lot about, too, just how, you know, our goal as brewers, we're trying to give the yeast what we think it needs and wants, uh, and then we have to monitor it and 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 react and kind of watch and and wait and see how how it's going. Uh, along with that, you got into um, you kind of segued into vitality by saying, "Look, if if one or more of the of the parameters that we monitor is not going the way it should be, we start trying to figure out whether we should reuse this yeast. You know, is it healthy or not? Um, why don't you talk about some of the Um, some of the articles that have been, you know, helpful there. So uh, one of them you mentioned is uh, vitality as defined by factors affecting yeast yeast viability and vitality characteristics, and that's a um, a Hegart from uh, 1999. Why don't you talk about that one a little bit?
2: It's one that I think anybody who is involved with fermentation ought to take a quick look at and read because it's, it's basically common sense. I think we all know these things. Uh, intuitively, it's just a matter of maybe bringing them to the surface and realizing the importance of them. You know, the fact that the uh, the cell count we know is going to increase. You're going to have a decrease in extract that that's expected. The temperature's going to rise, CO2 evolution, and so forth. Um, but what we want to do is we want to be able to measure the vigor or the physiological state of the living cell, the ability to endure stress and still perform, which we just did. We put it through a sort of a stressful period in this dormancy and. We're taking it out of that, and possibly putting it into another stressful situation. Depending on the work composition, like I mentioned earlier, some of the uh, beers that are being made, we might be stressing the yeast out over a couple series of of fermentations, and maybe after the fourth or fifth reuse of that yeast, it might not be very uh, very adaptive to the 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 physiological expectations that we have when we we pitch it. So that's what this article is all about. And I think it's a it's kind of like the bottom line there. Basically, it's a question of fitness for
1: use.
0: You talked about uh, selectively harvesting yeast. There's a really interesting article you, you pointed out about that, that kind of um, sort of uh, dismissed some of the old wives tales of brewing. Why don't you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that article, um, while I was reading this one. It's a rather detailed one. Um, the uh, the individuals that wrote it are really, really very knowledgeable about fermentation and yeast and so forth. And what they basically said in their studies was, and this really pertains to uh, large vessel fermenters, is that the thought is, is that when you when the yeast goes through its process of fermenting out, it's when it's when fermentation is complete and it's used all as extract, the yeast will start to flock out. Well, the thought is is that what will flock out first, besides the, maybe the dead yeast cells and so forth, would be the more flocculent yeast, and then uh, the less flocculent at the top. So the thought is that over a period of time, if you're only selecting the yeast from the bottom of the, from, of the cone, you're going to get a more flocculent yeast over time, and, and you may have some fermentation issues. And the opposite, if uh, you're har- selectively harvesting yeast from the top of the, of the, of the cone. Uh, what this article basically says is not, it's not necessarily true in that majority of the most flocculent yeast is actually being found somewhat in the center of the cone. So uh, this goes to the fact that how are you harvesting your yeast? How fast are you pumping the yeast out of the cone? Are you rat-holing it, going into a yeast brink? All those things need to be considered, and obviously the thing you want to do, obviously, is, is watch the performance of your yeast over time, and if you start to see... Some of these anomalies like uh, you know suddenly becoming super uh, super attenuating and flocking out quickly that maybe you are in fact uh, selectively harvesting and you just want to you know this article references some of those issues and, and maybe how it can be addressed by by uh, maybe changing your practices it's more of an awareness yeah. qu- more of an awareness article than anything else
0: yeah it 's a great read for those who've been told for years to pull from the middle of the cone
2: coming up a ferment from out a little bit faster I'm not saying real fast I'm saying maybe maybe 12 hours maybe 18 hours a little quicker but they were faster as a result of just a slight change in the geometry of the uh, of the cone of the fermenter
0: I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas
1: Brewers podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pils, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pils is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pils carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry
0: yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. There's still not a whole lot on the Master Brewers calendar, but with vaccinations starting to roll out throughout the U.S., there's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland, check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. You also get into sort of the uh, the physical aspects, uh, physical characteristics of the fermenter. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about cone angles and aspect ratio and, and things like that?
2: Yeah, that was something that uh, uh, I, I kind of learned by by accident. Um, the uh, one of them had to do with the ability of the wort as it fills a fermenter, and you have a large fermenter and how well it's mixing with the yeast and causing the yeast to be pretty much uniform as that fermenter fills, rather than uh, just kind of coming in behind the, the yeast. If you pitch it all in the first brew and it's kind of sitting at the top of the, of the, of the liquid level, that uh, you're going to have what's called stratified fermentation. And actually, uh, Dave Caprel, um has written some pretty good articles on that, and that's kind of who I referenced in this, this article as to who to, who to look at to, to get that kind of information. Now, to give you an example, uh, where I kind of stumbled across it is that uh, the, the one brewery I was in, the, uh, the pipe going into the bottom of the fermenter was they're rather large. So you look at your net velocity coming off the work cooler, going in to the fermenter itself was actually fairly slow and uh dave i think references you want to be going into that fermenter at about 11 feet per second to get good mixing and this was well below that um and ironically uh you know the the breweries that that i'm involved with they're all pretty much the same in terms of the way they were constructed but uh we had one one brewery where the inlet pipes uh long story but they had to be they had to be replaced and um What ended up happening was they replaced these large pipes with a smaller pipe, and the outcome was that uh, that we had a a much better velocity going into the bottom of these fermenters, into the cone, and we were getting better mixing. And we were seeing VDK, SO2, those type of things being lower in comparison to the breweries with the larger inlet pipes. Hmm. So that kind of... Tuned me on to this whole process, and then I did a little bit more research on that. So that's why I, it's kind of like one of those self-discovery things.
0: Very interesting. Uh, why don't you explain what aspect ratio is and also talk about your observations. You mentioned a few observations with um, differences in, in cones. I think you, you referenced a 25-degree cone versus a 45-degree cone.
2: Yeah, that was sort of another discovery. Uh, aspect ratio is basically the height to uh, width ratio of a fermenter. And in some cases, you have fermenters that are extremely, extremely tall and narrow, and you have others that are somewhat short and sort of squat, so to speak. And uh, the, the thought is, what's the best uh, ratio in order to get the proper mixing, fermentation, heat transfer, all that? And there's a lot of different articles uh, as to I, guess, I don't think there's agreement within the industry, whether it's an issue or not. I've, I challenged a manufacturer once and he told me that that aspect ratio was just something for the intellectual guys to sit down and figure out. And it really wasn't important. <laughs> um, I got I'm kind of paraphrasing him, uh, you know, um but uh, you just you hear you know you hear stories and you see some you go to a brewery and you see some fermenters and say well how are they working for you you know and and uh, you you know you hear different things so that's why uh, I think aspect ratio is something to consider I think in the in the craft industry though I, I don't think it's that much of an issue because the fermenters are all pretty much standardized design I think the key thing though is is that the cone angle I think is optimal at about sixty five to 70, 70 degrees, 65 to 70 degrees seems to be the best for harvesting yeast and so forth. Um, now, what I found out was that in one of our breweries, we actually had 45 degree cones and, and 25 degree cones. And now going back to that mixing issue, actually, the 25 degrees actually mixed better because it was a little bit flatter. And although the flow in there was real slow, it did mix better on those 25s. And how we found that? Same way. Looked at the uh, rate of fermentation growth and the rate that the was reduced, and I looked at things like CO2 or uh, SO2 levels and things of that nature. But, yeah, it jumped out that, hey, look, these ferment a little bit faster. I'm not saying real fast. I'm saying maybe, maybe 12 hours, maybe 18 hours, a little quicker, but they were faster as a result of just a slight change in the geometry of the, uh, of the cone of the fermenter.
0: All right. You mentioned um, how you've used fishbone diagrams a little bit to troubleshoot and learn over the years. And uh, I wanted to point out, I'm looking right now at uh, the uh, the publication Brewing Chemistry and Technology in the Americas, which was edited by uh, Peter Gales. And this has uh, 120 cause and effect fishbone diagrams that Greg Casey put together. Why don't you talk a little bit about how useful those have been to you and, and how, how you use them?
2: Well, I think the, the, they're they're wonderful. They're really great. Um, I think every brewery should have a copy of this sitting around, and and or maybe uh, have access uh, through the internet to get to it. Um, here's the situation we brewers have, and that is trying to explain certain uh, anomalies that we run into, like uh, high SO2 or diacetyl or uh, H2S aromas, or you know attenuation issues trying to explain those uh, to uh, senior leadership. Um, their role is ensuring that the breweries are running well and that the whole gamut from materials to going out the back door, everything's flowing well. And they don't really have the luxury to do some of the deep dives that we as brewers can do. So what to be honest with you, what I really use these for is if we run into a situation, I just kind of uh, put one of these uh, fish bones on an overhead and that way I can talk through um, what, some of the, what some of the things we're working on, you know. Um, and Greg's done a really nice job of uh, putting out the, in red, what the issues are, in black, what's working well, or what you can kind of look at. So it's just a very convenient um, to be able to pull out and show people, hey, these are the things we should be going after. I'm sure there's a couple other things too. I mean, they're not 100%, but it's really a good starting point point. and that's what i emphasize to say we'll start with this and work forward and if we can resolve it using what we have here we're good if not we'll just keep looking
0: tom you went outside of the scope of yeast and brought up some other articles that were great resources one of which was characterization of malt grist fractions why don't you tell us why you included that one what did you like about it
2: the article, it's it's more on, on uh, malt grind analysis, and I think it was done by some of our friends at uh, Anna's or Bush, and what amazed me was it just shows you the fractionation of the what's coming off your malt mill and how much of that is uh, um, probably unusable material, but it's there. It's going to be part of the lautering process and what to expect. And what this helped me with was actually getting my malt mill set up correctly and and following the format that they they use and we tweaked it a little bit but just understanding that and that's a good like i said it's just a it was a, from 1984 it's a pretty old article but, but it was just one of those basic hey this is what happens when when your malt goes through your malt mill and and you fractionate it in the different sieves you know what you can expect so i think it's if uh if you're looking for a, a fun article to read that would be it i i uh i still remember that one it's a good one so
0: Recently, Tom, you had the unique challenge of closing a very large brewery in Eden, North Carolina. What was that like?
2: Well, um, well it was disappointing, obviously. Uh, but I think the thing is is that uh, what I've I, unfortunately I had been involved in two closures, and uh, this most recent one, uh, it's amazing how people understand the situation. And really strive to do a good job in closing it down. I was extremely proud of my team. Um, We left that brewery in basically in pristine condition from the malt receiving all the way to the to the bright beer tanks. Um, Things were shut down with a lot of due diligence. Uh, I had a couple of process leads that I was extremely proud of because when you're shutting down a facility like that, you're also removing materials that are in excess trying to transfer them to the other breweries, uh, getting equipment moved, records stored and filed away. And everybody did just a really, really great job. I was real proud of them. How did you
0: go about throttling down production? And is there anything you wish you could have done differently during that process? Do you have any advice for anyone else out there who might end up with uh, similar marching orders one day?
2: Wow, good question. Um, uh, throttling it down, we actually just followed uh, the lead. Of, I know this may sound like a cop-out, but this is, we just followed the lead of production scheduling. We worked with them, and, and, and they basically had a plan on how they were going to be taking down the various packaging lines as we would discontinue certain brands, One, uh, we would stop brewing those, making sure we had enough materials, one, to brew them, enough packaging materials to package what we, we had in our inventory to minimize what was left over. So that coordination was uh, real critical. I think if there's one thing we learned, it's the importance of of knowing what uh, the final amount of product you're you're going to be sending out, and do you have all the materials needed uh, to to get it all packaged and and sent out? And of course, you have to have the orders to support it. So that was some of the uh, the key things. The other thing is that uh, a number of the brands that we were brewing were now going to be brewed in other breweries. So we were being called. And asked about the details of how we went about brewing those, uh, anything, any watch outs, what needed to happen. And it wasn't like these were pretty tricky brands we were making. Um, and they, uh, they were being moved to uh, primarily to one brewery that had a little bit of experience with them, but just trying to get to understand the, the nuances of that new brand in terms of things like laudering and filtration and, and uh, material handling, because uh, it, well, these weren't your basic. Brews, these were brews that involved some flavorings or involved uh, some specialty hops, specialty malt, that type of thing. Uh, if there's one thing I think I could have done better would have been in that arena. Um, I think one of the problems was uh, the distance between us and them. If they were in the same room with us, I think we could have worked out some of the issues a little bit better. Uh, but by and large, I think still we still came out okay when it was all said and done. All right. So, but, but, uh, probably the most important thing though, of course, is obviously your personnel and that is keeping them informed, um, being straight, look them straight in the eye, tell them exactly what's going to happen. So there's no surprises.
0: Good advice. Tom, I always enjoy seeing you at a master Brewers district meeting. You've been coming to these for years. What keeps you coming back?
2: Yeah, I think there, John, uh, like we said, you go to these district meetings and you, you meet somebody and, uh, you start talking about a problem, and then you kind of look around the table that you're at, and all of a sudden, three or four more individuals have joined you, and and someone brings up a, a point, is telling you a point about it, and that gets discussed, and, and uh, names are written down, and uh, it just like I said, that the, uh, the 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 ability for people to share information within master brewers, especially with the uh, craft brewers coming on board. Has really been refreshing. Uh, I really enjoy going to these district meetings and and listening to guys explain. Hey, this is how we make a sour beer. And uh, for a guy like me that's never really been exposed to it, I heard one little district meeting we had. I heard four different varieties of how people make sour beers. All of them were very good. All of them are tried and true methods. But it's like, wow, that's really something. So I walked away from that district meeting with a lot more knowledge about at least about sour beers, anyway. And I could now speak. Uh, a little bit about them not look like uh, um, lost in the woods on it. So that's cool. That's I think, I think that's the cool thing about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was master brewers, past president and one of the nicest guys in this industry, Tom Epplet. here on the master brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to the video of the district presentation that inspired this episode. Or if you just want to see the other articles in Tom's binder, Flip through the slides. There's a link to those too, and you heard Tom mention Greg Casey's fishbone diagrams. That's the same Greg Casey from episode 174 about the American Rhine Heitske boat that we narrowly avoided. Check the show notes for a link to those fishbones, and be on the lookout for big things from Greg in 2021. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use the promo code BEER20, or the link in the show notes, to save 20% on dues if you register before the end of the year. Oh